0: Just to have the, the words to describe this that were not you're dumb or you're stupid, but that there is neurological, biological roots behind why your mind works the way that it does. When you have that label, part of what it, it gives you is community. And so to be able to say, I am dyslexic, like Harry Belafonte is dyslexic. I am dyslexic like Muhammad Ali is dyslexic. And so you could start making all these connections and your narrative is connecting to all these other people's narratives. That is just, that's very empowering. It's an uplifting act. Why like silence is never going to be golden. We always have to, have to give words to our experience.
1: From the Understood Podcast Network, this is The Opportunity Gap, a podcast for families of kids of color who learn and think differently. We explore issues of privilege, race, and identity. And our goal is to help you advocate for your child. I'm Julian Saavedra.
2: And I'm Marissa Wallace. Julian and I worked together for years as teachers in a public charter school in Philadelphia, where we saw opportunity gaps firsthand.
1: And we're both parents of kids of color, so this is personal to us. Welcome back, everybody. Julian Saavedra here. Hey, Marissa, what's going on?
2: Hi, Julian. Oh, you know, just some excitement in the building today.
1: Somehow, some way, we are incredibly fortunate to continue having really phenomenal people on the podcast. And our guest has spoken at the United Nations. He has spoken at the White House, a Black man, a poet, an activist, and a person living with dyslexia. Welcome, 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 Mr. Lederick Horn. Hello, hello. Um, So we want to make sure that before we jump into the actual interview portion of the show, we explain specifically uh, one disability that we're going to be focusing on. We're focusing on dyslexia. Dyslexia is a learning disability in reading. It may also be something that a, a student has a hard time with their reading comprehension, with spelling, and with writing. So making sure that when we speak about dyslexia, we're specifically focusing on the idea of reading.
2: Thank you, Julian. Thanks for clarifying that for our listeners, and thank you, Lederic, so incredibly much. We're we are beyond grateful for having you. We want to take it back to your early days. We would love for you to just tell us, tell the listeners, what was school like for you and what did the world look like at that time?
0: Well, I think different points in my time through school were you know, at times very challenging, at other times very uplifting. Mm-hmm. I started out my education at a private school, a, a Catholic school in New Brunswick, New Jersey, St. Peter's. And uh, that was kindergarten and first grade the first time, and then first grade the second time. And, you know, I remember being a kid. I remember in, enjoying being in school and being around kids, even when it would be that I was struggling academically. I recall. First, my family—they they recommended that I be placed back in district, and eventually, I was recognized as being someone who needed to be evaluated. I was initially given the label being neurologically impaired, mm-hmm. and my great teacher, Miss Miss Priscilla Yates, who was my first special ed teacher, and just how much love she poured into each and every one of us—a feeling that I still have today, just the the investment and the caring that she had. And you know, I also remember our school district started a gifted and talented program, and this was a, a brand new thing, and, and Ms. Yates really encouraged me to go out and be a part of that class. And I remember stepping into it for the first time and feeling just totally overwhelmed. And I, at that point, I'd been special ed for a few years, and I realized that at that moment, I think I'd become institutionalized. I'd been, you know, placed in an environment where there was very little interaction with other students outside of special ed, and that just felt overwhelming. Middle school, there was a lot of emotion around, I think, my identity and where I fit in into the world and thought I got very good at putting up the front of being yeah. okay. But internally, I, I was not okay. And the further I got in the high school, the the more challenging putting up that front was to maintain until I yeah, I got to my winter junior year. And I always describe it as me just having a an emotional breakdown. And it was primarily uh, motivated, I think, one from just the stress of trying to like pass for normal, but also the, the fear of not knowing what was going to happen to me after I graduated from high school. I, this was at a time when I did not know, like they weren't really doing much in the way of transition planning. I, what I knew was that I, would, I like, I wanted to go to college, but I didn't think that folks like me could go to college because all you do is read books and, and solve complicated math problems. And that was just, was not me at the time. And then the, the career goals seemed like it was always just going to be like manual labor. I was depressed and clearly showing signs that I you know, needed mental health support. I'm very fortunate that I totally won the parent lottery. I have a very supportive family. I think I've also been uh, very resilient. And I used that horrible time as an opportunity to rebuild myself and bounce back. And I started talking about going to college. And then, yeah, and then the, the world changed for me. Wow.
1: I, I love how... You're able to be so reflective, like being able to look back and and identify specific moments in time in your school career where there were shifts. I I call them like points of diversion, where one or two or three paths could have been chosen and each path that you chose led to a specific outcome. So thank you for that.
0: Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. And the point of divergence piece, I think, is important because at any moment, I'm very clear. Like I have I had friends growing up that did jail time you know, that got involved in all kind of behavior. And, and I always try to point out the folks that like, I, I'm a pretty bright guy, but many of my classmates, these people were just brilliant. But I think so much of it is around how much support you have. And then sadly enough, I think it's also a roll of the dice. Like there were plenty of times where, you know, if, if, I don't know, an encounter had gone the wrong way, maybe I wouldn't be here today. Mm-hmm. And I also know that I, this Existential, existential dread that I think I carried for a long time when I was a young person, where I just, I didn't think I was going to live past 25. I just didn't think that was uh, in the cards for me. Just before that breakdown, I know I was suicidal. I've described it in the past as like the, the most clearest thing I remember is like wanting to get in an altercation with a police officer so that that i get locked up or or I'd be shot and killed. And police officers have a name for it. They call it death by cop. Yeah. And, um, yeah, was, those are those very dark times. And I was very fortunate that, yeah, that none of that took place. And I was given a little bit more time to work a little bit more on myself and to step into more of my potential. Gotcha.
2: That's really raw and real. And I'm appreciative that you're at a point, obviously, in your life where you can go down and, and reflect and understand everything that got you to exactly where you are.
1: For you, when did you discover when you were dyslexic? Like When did that occur for
0: you? The language is interesting. Who gets the label of of dyslexia and who doesn't? And I definitely think of it as a, a label of privilege, right? So I grew up in New Jersey. I was born in 77, and I'm a part of the first generation of students to to really be able to take advantage of the Individual Disability Education Act and creation of special education. And here in, in, in my state, one of the labels that was tossed around a lot, particularly for boys and particularly for boys of color, was neurologically impaired. And so I carried that throughout my entire time. And it was like either you went to the neurologically impaired class or you went to the behavior class, right? And I remember the kids in the behavior class, but I got to college. And my, uh, I was at Middlesex County College, and they were they had a great support program for students with learning disabilities, attention issues, and they also provided evaluations. And so, after being there for five years and getting ready to transfer to a university, I asked to be evaluated. That was it was a, actually a fun experience because at that point I had won so many battles. I had learned how to write. I'd I'd become a math major. I'd like become a strong self advocate. And so, I was sitting in the evaluation and. Laughing at some of the places where I would struggle with, you know, spelling or reading or what have you, and then also just like just slam dunking. Like I remember our spatial relations question, and the lady was like, "Give you everybody takes a while for this one," and I just got it right immediately. She, as a person with learning and tension issues, you know, sometimes our performance is sort of all over the place. But when those results came back, she said, "Yeah, you can call yourself dyslexic. You're dyslexic." And I think prior to that, the disability counselor that I had, she was the first person to sit down and explain to me what it meant to be LD. And I remember her introducing me. I was speaking to, I think, a group of IEP team members when I was still a college student. She said, this guy is severely dyslexic. And I was like, yeah, that's me. That's me. How
1: did that feel when you finally, you had a label to the things you were experiencing?
0: I grew up in both a household I think a larger community and the school culture also reflected prevailing culture of silence where we just, we didn't talk about it. And I think it was one of the things that I was really craving when I was a young person is just, can we have some dialogue about right. things which are just clearly not, not right? And no one was talking about it. Going into college, uh, I started to use the word learning disability Okay. And I know that there's like a lot of debate about the use of disability and learning disability and what have you. But I still use it because it was very empowering for me. Some of the first language that I had to, to describe it. I also think of myself as someone who learns differently. Just to have the the words, words to describe this that were not you're dumb or you're stupid, but that there is uh, neurological, biological roots behind why your mind works the way that it does. And then the, I would say even more powerful than that was that when you have that label, part of what it gives you is community. And so to be able to say, I am dyslexic like Harry Belafonte is dyslexic. I am dyslexic like Muhammad Ali is dyslexic. And so you could start making all these connections and, your narrative is connecting to all these other people's narratives and that is that is just that's very empowering it's an uplifting act that's why like silence is, is never going to be golden we always have to give words to our experience
2: i mean i've worked in special education for over a decade and i always struggle with certain schools or certain institutions that that is their thought or they dance around. Like we're not being upfront or direct with our families or our students. And I definitely think by the secondary, I've always worked in middle school and in high school. By that point, it is it is unfair, it is disrespectful to some extent to not have these real conversations with students so they can understand themselves better. Because I can only imagine that difference or that switch when you were at a point where you could provide language and vocabulary, because then there is that then that connection and that sense of empowerment that I think so many of our children don't have, and still don't have. So that's really eye opening.
0: Yeah, and, and you know, and particularly if you want to prepare your your young people for the adult world. Because like, this stuff ain't going away. I'm, I'm going to be dyslexic right. till I die. And so if you're going to work for someone and you've got, you've got employees or co-workers or a manager or whatever, and you need support, the adult world means if you want those supports, you have to be able to self-disclose. You have to be able to have that conversation. And I encourage us with our young people to start having those conversations as early as possible. And I think at any age, we can start talking about this. I think, And I think everyone can embrace that. And we, at a very basic level, all of us should be aware. And I think that this is an exercise that every single human being needs to do, is you need to be clear about what your strengths are and what your challenges are.
2: You have said in the past, and you kind of already gave some shout outs to some teachers, but you said that it takes one person to change to life, right? So... I don't know if it's the person you already mentioned, but who was that person that you feel really was that catalyst or that life changer for you?
0: Yeah. So I was in school as a little kid and just passing from one grade to another. And then yeah, Miss Yates, my first special ed teacher, just created this safe space. And so when I was really young, that was that was her. And and I and I know that part of the reason why I've been as successful as I have been is because that one person has shown up at different times. When I was in high school, there was a substitute teacher that you should show up. And he was just like this hippie, neo-hippie dude who was talking about auras and all this other kind of stuff. But but it was also just like a moment where I was just like questioning myself and my, my place in the universe. And I wanted to have these big philosophical conversations. And this was a guy who I could talk about meditation and I could talk about these sort of things and how our our decisions directly affect what our reality is like. And then when I got to college, Susan Conlin, who was my disability counselor, she showed up and she was the first person to sit down and read through my documentation with me. So all of my, my IEPs, all the evaluations that had ever been written up about me uh, and my learning disability, she was the person that sat down and laid everything out to me and gave me the permission just to write and to not worry about spelling as much. And no one had ever given me that kind of permission, right? Like the to make that there was a certain honor in making mistakes. And that was just a part of the process of learning and just it's going to happen. So let's just figure out what your process is going to be. She just empowered me to just embrace the idea that that I could write and just to write anything. And at the time, I think she was just encouraging me to get these essays done so that I could could get out of remedial English. But I took that home and started writing poetry. And yeah, and that just opened up a whole world for me.
1: I'm always interested in hearing specifically about the experience of Black men and their experience with learning and thinking differences. You know, as a black male educator myself, I've been fortunate to work in schools where the majority of the students I work with are black folks. And I know that in the 18 years that I've been in education, there's been a pretty big shift in the way that we speak about special education. Earlier in my career, there was a pretty strong stigma related to any time we talk about special ed. And now probably in the last five or six years, I find that our parents and our students are coming in to school way more like knowledgeable about the process, a lot more open to discussing special education and all the opportunities that come with it. And I'm wondering from your perspective, you experienced it as a student and even throughout the time you transitioned from elementary to middle to now the college experience you had, and now as somebody who's working in the field, can you talk about like some of the things that you've seen transition and specifically with, with Black men, how that plays into what that transition looks like?
0: I agree with you. I think the the landscape is definitely changing. It's great to be able to interact with more and more families who are open to utilizing supports like special education, but particularly for Black families. But I also think it's just it's very spotty, right? There are times where you're looking at like, multi-generational trauma related to schooling and that there are families that are just like, I'm not going to put my kid through what I went through because maybe mom and dad had the experience of passing through special ed and it was not an inclusive environment. Special ed was probably more of a space that you were in versus a set of services that you were receiving. I think that some of the biggest challenges that educators and advocates face is being able to help people to see what are some of the benefits that come along with having your child evaluated, with having special education supports. I know as a, you know, as a black man you're carrying this legacy, at times like having to feel like you need to be perfect all the time. I, I can't make a mistake, right? I can't make a mistake. And that goes from like the clothes you put on when you step into a professional environment or, or any kind of environment to the language that you use. And it can be very challenging to say, look, I really can't spell that well, or I really cannot read that well. And particularly given all the history that our people have fought through to be able to gain the actual right to literacy and to say that this is something that I, I cannot express in the same way as everybody else can. There are a lot of people who just aren't trying to hear that. And then when you combine that with the, the idea of being a man and all those those uh, the constructs that come along with that and, and how- You, you know, have to be twice
1: as fast and right? there's no margin for excuses or for error. You like You just got to get it done. No matter what, you just got to get what, what you need to get done.
0: And when I talk, get the opportunity to go into schools and to talk to students, I say that's one of my, my number one goals is just to help everybody to understand that it's okay to ask for help, that there's nothing wrong with that.
1: So thinking about that, and, and thank you for helping us understand there's commonality And a lot of the things you're speaking of are are things that I've experienced myself and things that I even see in my students now experiencing talking through some of that. And the idea of having somebody that they can trust to express what they're experiencing is really incredibly important. I hear that you're a gifted poet and I've been able to check out some of your work. And tell us about that. What is it about poetry that spoke to you or inspired you? And how did that process happen?
0: I think I've always been a lover of words from like the very, very beginning. My mother tells stories about me telling stories as a little boy and just having a a pretty strong command of of language, at least spoken word. And then I I recall as a very little boy recording segments of Hamlet when it was on TV and interesting jingles that just had an interesting rhyme structure. And I remember being probably in, in... seventh or eighth grade and taking my father's one of his cassette tapes and it was i think it had hotel Cali- california on it and i just remember the storytelling within that song and just being amazed by it and i i, I know i was also really blessed because i went through graduated from high school in the mid 90s and there was a that was an era of hip-hop that was very conscious politically conscious i'm in these special ed classrooms with a, with a bunch of black boys many of us want to be mcs I had some classmates who were amazing artists and and I always give them a lot of a lot of credit and appreciation because I think many of them could see the poet in me before I could and were like in, inviting me to come out and to try to say a rhyme or this that and the other and I was horrible I couldn't do it but I but I got, yeah, I got to college and I learned how to write essays. I, I, I got to utilize spell check. I got a real clear understanding of sentence structure and the use of punctuation. And yeah, and then I just, I began waking up in the middle, like literally in the middle of the night and just writing poems. Like the, some of the first poems that I remember hearing were, my, my mother had a, la, a last poet album, the first last, the last poets who was a group from uh, Harlem, New York yeah, and so I remember being a kid and listening to those albums. And that's what poetry became for me. I really think the responsibility of of the artists is also to use their work to create a a better world, to you know to, to push our society, push our culture to be more inclusive, more accepting. That's how I, how it began. and I, I remember taking my pile of poems that I had written in the middle of the night and stepping on a stage in New Brunswick, New Jersey, and reading my first poem, and everybody clapped. And I was, and I was hooked. they snap? And, I, yeah. <laughs> and they snapped. <laughs> right, right. Um, who did you rock with? Yeah. So some of my favorite groups were like, <laughs> I don't even like the Diggable Planets. I don't know if everybody remembers like who oh, yes. cool like that. Oh, I got yes. to see yes. the Diggable, before the pandemic, I got to got to go see the Diggable Planets. My wife got me tickets and that was like an incredible moment. But yeah, like a tribe called Quest. Kind of right? Q-Tip, uh, Q-tip most, absolutely. Maybe. and
1: tip, and-, and... Yeah, Ali, I'm, yeah. I'm oh, yeah, yeah, oh okay, yeah, and, and yeah, the whole so Black many. Thought
0: movement. I'm a lover of Jay Z's lyrics. You know, I remember you know sitting outside of a teen club trying to freestyle over "Can I Live." Shout out to Brian Wallace, mm-hmm. who is now a, 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 a principal uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: down in in uh, in, the, in Maryland, okay. um, and will every so often drop a rhyme for his students. <laughs> okay, just to let them know, just to so let them know, know what's up. All right, <laughs> and all right. He, he's also a minister, and so I've gone to some <laughs> of his services, and he will, he will rap with the choir, you know, he, and so, yeah, but that's that's it,
1: a form of communication, exactly, right? and, and exactly. that's and a an form of expression yes, that, yes. you know, our our gift to the world has been through the artistry of of words, and uh-huh. that's why I, it's just so profound for me to hear, you know, somebody who experienced this dyslex- dyslexia and you flip it on its head. And you go out and share with the world, you know, how to take these words and and not only master it, but make it something beautiful. Shout out to yourself, too, for doing that and recognizing that this is something that you could do to share with everybody else.
2: I definitely heard a lot of lessons and a lot of things that you learned through your journey of engaging with poetry and how you, and again, like Julian said, like you did, you flipped it on on its head and you really took something that others might have seen as a weakness and you turned it into your strength. So throughout that process of becoming a poet and becoming your true self, I'm sure there was some of those struggles or some of those moments where you, you potentially like, I I don't want it. This is hard, right? What would you say to someone who may be out there really wanting to do something that might be not what others think they can do, but what do you tell them? How do you tell them to work through those struggles?
0: First, personally, I think one of the, the great gifts of the black experience, and particularly in my family, like my grandfather was a civil rights activist. My parents definitely, they were raising me on the tail end of the black liberation movement. And I knew who Malcolm X was even as a little kid and Martin Luther King. And going through my breakdown, One of the things that I realized was that I could map onto my experience, the overall Black experience. And so to say that is to say, I know that society gets it wrong, right? Like the dominant society oftentimes does not know what the hell it's talking about. And as a Black man, you can be told like you are are destined to be a criminal, you don't have anything to offer to the world, all this other kind of stuff. And then at some point, you're just kind of like, nah, they, that's wrong. Like, I, I am not going to buy into that. I am going to choose another path. I, I think one of the more powerful things is just to, to share my own story. But it's also to, to remind them that when you're like, I think all of us sometimes have these passions that maybe are in no way connected to what our skills are. But if you can, if you follow that passion and put the time in and the work in, you can become whatever it is you mm-hmm. imagine. I, I think all of us have to be comfortable with the idea that you may not be great, great at the beginning. Right? Sure.
2: <laughs> Take that right. leap and put in the work. That's what I hear you like. That's the two things, like those two things to hook into and do. Yeah.
0: And it's and, and you're right. Nothing is going to save you from putting the work in. I think that's another thing that dyslexics, if you're going to be successful, you, you do have to be comfortable with is the idea that Nothing's going to save you from having to work sometimes much harder than everybody else. Even with all the supports in the world, like many of us are just going to have to put more time in.
1: Thinking about that mindset that you've developed and specifically in all of the work that you've been doing, you have tons of accolades, you've done a lot of fascinating things. I'm interested to know like, what is the part of the work that you enjoy the most?
0: I wrote this poem Until Every Barrier Falls, which was celebrating the 30th anniversary of of the Americans with Disability Act. And I I shouted out Judy Heumann in that poem. Judy Human, who is a disability rights advocate, a legend in this space, immediately, like upon us talking, was like, You need to I need to introduce you to this person and then you need to meet this person and meet that person. And how those things work. (laughs) Yeah. But I walked away from that and I was like, there's power in just like connecting people. And so one of the things that I enjoy really now is being able to like meet somebody and say, I know someone else that you should be collaborating with. There's somebody else and they may be on the other side of the country, but y'all need to know each other. And I just started working with a new accountant and I connected her with a, a black woman run nonprofit organization and they're doing amazing stuff together right now. And so there's, yeah, there's something about that, that like, building community, which is really exciting. Within the past couple of years, I've made a a very specific effort to do work directed to helping the Black community in particular, right? So people with disabilities, variety of disabilities within the Black community. There's a lot of work to be done there. I, I think one of the things that if you really look, I think, objectively at whether it be within dyslexia or or any sort of disability supports. There there are a lot of white folks who are running the the organizations. There are a lot of white folks who have really figured out how to take advantage of different resources out there. And a lot of that knowledge and that access hasn't trickled down to communities of color. You know, addressing some of those disparities is something that I'm really passionate about right now. And then, like last week, I through some of this work that I'm doing with a local school district, um, an administrator connected me with a senior in high school who's dyslexic, got on, got on a Zoom call with him and his mom. And the beginning of that conversation, this young man was like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a, a, a construction worker. And, and in 40 minutes, he was like, no, nah, I'm going to college. I don't think everybody needs to go to college, but what I don't want any of us to make a decision uh, about our lives. Is, is, I don't want us to make it from a, I don't want any of us to make a decision about our future from a place of fear.
2: Well, Derek, the work that you are doing is critical. It's impactful. The bridges that you're building, these connections and these relationships are really what our society and our world needs to really evolve and be a better place. Can you leave us with some advice for our listeners, for our families, our caretakers, especially those who are navigating their children or with individuals who have learning and thinking differences? And and of course, like you said, you shared a lot about your own intersectionality between race and having these learning and thinking differences. So what advice, what keywords words or key phrases do you leave with them as we get ready to close out today?
0: The big challenge about having, for most of us, with learning and attention issues is that you can't see it. You can't see it from across the room. I encourage families, the person you meet at the grocery store line, it's okay to talk about getting these supports or thinking about getting these supports with my kid or my kid, because you just never know who you're connecting with and and how that word may spark them to take the next step that may help their child. Part of the work I'm doing now is to try to build a coalition within religious institutions within the Black community. I think all of our churches Uh, Our mosques, we should have some sort of ministry around supporting folks with with disabilities or differences. You know, bringing those conversations within those spaces, particularly spaces which traditionally we sought out support. We've always sought out support. Sharing your story is really important, and it's something that I encourage our families to do. And I think, again, part of the reason is because um, this can be very challenging Right? It's going to be challenging for, for mom, dad, grandma, aunts and uncles. It's going to be challenging for the kid, but none of us have to go through this alone. So the sharing the story part allows us to build community, allows us to draw strength from each other, and then the, to be able to share resources that it's at times overused, but it does take a village, it takes a village. And so, you know, all of us should be working to try to build that village. Can I do a can I do a poem to close? Please, I was was going to ask. I I know I was
2: going to ask. Like I was going to ask too, but I I didn't want to put you on the spot. (laughs) Right? I'm like I didn't want him to think, oh man. But but if you're ready, please grace grace the listeners with your words.
0: So we 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 ended by talking about families. So I'll I'll do this this poem I wrote about families, and uh, the poem is is it's hanging up in the in in my grandmother's home. The first and rarest gift is love. It is a light, a kiss, commitment, promises whispered, a touch gentle, we are, because those before us dared to love, to step forward together, out from Pharaoh's land, into a future unknown, we are that future, within each of us there is a promised land. Our bones are made strong by our grandparents' belief. Our skin still carries the warmth of a sun-filled sky. It's been a roundabout way. At times, the road was hard, but somehow we found a path. We always had enough, and we still fly. We still fabulous. We still shine like grandmother's smile, still shine like candy paint on summer's day, still shine like the gold of wedding rings, still shine like the love that pulled us through. A cloud by day, fire by night. Even with a mask on, you can see our light. Even at a distance, we stay in touch. Through post, we share our prosperity. Through the phone, we answer a call for support. Through screens, we meet newborn sweet babies. The dream was tested, but not deferred. The turntables might wobble, but our music kept playing. Through it all, our hearts kept dancing, and we still fly. We still fabulous. We, the twist, the braid, the wavy straight fade. We, the cage bird song, phenomenal, beloved, the ones who still speak of rivers. We. The dark brown, light-toned, cocoa-sweet, descendants of tears and triumph, we... The gamblers, penny stake players, $2 birdies, hustle and the joy. We, the workers, the hands made rough from plow to factory, from blackboard to emergency room, from office space to hair salon. We, the draped up and dripped out, riding slow, deuce out. We, the voices seeking grace, praying in mercy, lifted in praise and song. We are that song, that poetry. The lyric living, humanity's rhythm, a people dipped in the blues, we are family. Yes, yes, y'all, we are family. In my grandmother's house, there is love. The first and rarest gift. That love lives in each of us. It is our inheritance, our light. It is the connection that connects us all. Thank you so much. Thank you, brother. Yeah. Thank, <laughs> Thank you
1: Thank you for having me on. Blessing us with your presence. Thank you. You've been listening to The Opportunity Gap from the Understood Podcast Network. Do you have something you'd like to say about the issues we discussed on this podcast or a topic you'd like us to cover? Email us at opportunitygap at understood.org. We want to hear from you. If you want to learn more about the topics we covered today, check out the show notes for this episode. We include more resources, as well as links to anything we mentioned in the episode.
2: Understood is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people who learn and think differently discover their potential and thrive. Learn more at understood.org mission. The Opportunity Gap is produced by Sin Pym. Brianna Berry is our production director. Andrew Lee is our editorial lead. Our theme music was written by Justin D. Wright, who also mixes the show. For the Understood Podcast Network, Laura Key is our editorial director, Scott Kosher is our creative director, and Seth Melnick is our executive producer.
1: Thanks again for listening.